Thank you for the water. Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our concluding talk here at uh, the Harrisburg Book Festival, uh, our annual event here in Midtown Harrisburg at the Midtown Scholar. In past years, we've had a number of really interesting talks on uh, the history of Harrisburg and on, on political corruption. We had a wonderful panel discussion on the Harrisburg 7 trial, another fantastic discussion on the book Kids for Cash, and... Uh, we're very pleased to have author Brad Bumstead here with us today to talk about his latest book, Keystone Corruption, which is truly a, a survey of uh, the past hundred years of corruption here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, I've been hoping to have a chance to interview Mr. Bumstead for a while. The book came out last year. He's done a number of, of different uh, talks around town. Um, it's, a, it's a book that you'll, you'll have trouble putting down. It really is a tremendous read. It is uh, both a history and uh, a series of meditations, I think, on the art of reporting, on personal relationships, and uh, on, uh, on really the, the history of, of Pennsylvania, especially uh, in the last decade or so. But I thought we'd, we'd sort of do a survey of the book, talk about some of the highlights, and then end opening it up uh, for questions. But maybe we should just start with a little bit about your, yourself, sir, maybe your, your history, how you uh, came uh, to report on this topic, and how long you've been doing it. Well, I've been a reporter about 40 years. I hate to say that. It ages me a bit. <laughs> but uh, I, I've worked... Uh, uh, for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review here at the state capitol since 1998. Prior to that, I worked for Gannett News Service for about 23 years. And uh, with the Trib, uh, I wound up covering the corruption investigations under the prior Attorney General Tom Corbett, some of the federal investigations, and all the trials that resulted here at the Dauphin County Courthouse. So for about five or six years, corruption was about 70 to 80 percent of my beat if you will. Hmm. So it dawned on me one day as I was walking back from the courthouse that, you know, I have all this material and I have the notes, I have the, the stories, and if I can get permission from my company to use all of that, I would have a book. And they quickly said, yes, I could do it. Yeah. And we're very supportive. Well, it's a fascinating book. As I say, it, uh, it sort of runs chronologically, and I think we can, we can uh, follow it chronologically. But let's start at the beginning with your, with your introduction uh, and talk a little bit about sort of Pennsylvania's rank among, among states in the union in terms of corruption. How unusual is Pennsylvania? Um, is, it, is it truly the most uh, corrupt straight state in the, uh, in the country? I know others uh, uh, you know, feel strongly that maybe that's not the case. Uh, so that's uh, the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, I think your, your, your thesis is that it happens and will continue to happen because, um, as you put it, uh, people don't speak out. And uh, it's tolerated and it continues and it will, will always continue. There is a degree to which there is a note where I, I sort of feel um, that uh, you don't think things will change and that it will just constantly repeat itself. So... Part one, where does Pennsylvania rank? And part two, why is it uh, about Pennsylvanians uh, and the culture here that allows us to tolerate it? Those are great questions. And the first, I'm asked all the time when I speak, how does Pennsylvania compare? Are we the most corrupt state? The answer is no. We're one of the most corrupt states, but certainly not the most. When you look at Illinois having four governors go to prison, 
no one can top that. Uh, you know, uh, right now you, there, there are scandals underway in New York and California, and there have been off and on over the years bribery scandals. New Jersey, Louisiana, historically are corrupt states. We're among the top top five or six without question. Now, the que- why? Um, there's no definitive answer. There are no real statistics to show which is the most corrupt. You can get uh, federal data on, on public corruption convictions in each state over a 10-year period. And Pennsylvania usually ranks fourth or fifth on that, which would be consistent with its population. Um, and that does not count state and local prosecutions, which comprise most of the mm-hmm. 40 that we saw over the past couple of years. Uh, so I think uh, the theory that makes the most sense to me is the, the culture of corruption that we've had in this state historically. And I think it's as a result of you know, a state like Pennsylvania, uh, New York, um, uh, Illinois. Uh, they're, they're states that had ward politics. You had political bosses. Mm-hmm. So therefore, favors and, and you know, patronage were a big part of, of everyday life. Uh, you add into that the ethnic groups that came over here to work in the, in the mines and in the steel mills, and they lived in, in uh, company-owned towns where you basically went along with whatever... You didn't have much choice if you wanted to have a job. So I think for all of those reasons combined, you know, we're a little more tolerant in this state, particularly in Philadelphia. It's corruption is like, you know, it's like, uh, oh, it's raining today. <laughs> and we'll talk about some of the history of those bosses, and that's interesting. So uh, you would you would put it in uh, literally in the state of uh, politics in Pennsylvania, the fact that that for so long we have patronage has just been uh, a way of life. Yeah, in the, um, the the author of the Kids for Cash book that you've had in here, Mr. Eckenberger, refers in there to buying teaching jobs up in mm-hmm. the Scranton Wilkesbury area, and uh, people have told me that that may still continue today. But they certainly did until recently. That that if you wanted a job, you had to pay so much to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And I'm going to give some personal asides as a part of that. After all, I am uh, the mayor of Harrisburg. And one of the interesting things that has happened to me since being mayor is the number of people that come up to me uh, and think that I have patronage jobs. They, they, they don't recognize uh, that, first of all, in the city, we don't have that. Uh, we have very few jobs. Uh, maybe historically we did. Uh, but secondly, that, uh, that even if we did, that, that there would be jobs basically just available because of... Um, who you know or who you're connected to. Um, and that does say something about the, uh, uh, the public sentiment towards government, which is that, of course, there's patronage. And, uh, and when, uh, when there's turnover, um, uh, people will be rewarded. Yes. Um, let's, uh, before we start talking about historically some of these bosses, uh, one of the things that I found very interesting about your book, and you start right at the beginning, is the degree to which you humanize a lot of these individuals, and you talk very openly and candidly about uh, being conflicted at various points, uh, having certain individuals that you admire and that you like, um, feeling genuinely sorry as uh, some of the individuals are, 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 are perp-walked. And, you know, at various points you talk about uh, scenes, you know, uh, literally, quote, making you ashamed to be a part of the media. 
can you talk a little bit about why you chose to sort of put your own personal sentiments uh, out there and then how that colored your reporting? I think being ashamed to be part of the media had to do with the TV reporters' questions. Yeah. But that's, that's Oh, the TV story. reporters yes. as opposed to the uh, uh, print ones, yes. No, it's, it's – uh, of course, I, you know, I knew most of these people for 25, 30 years who went to prison, and uh, you, don't, I would, you never call them friends. They're not friends. They shouldn't be friends, but you get to know them a little bit personally, and you hate to see anything happen to somebody uh, as bad as it is to have to go to prison. However, you know, another side of me says, look, they were ripping off the taxpayers for years and years and finally got a little of what they deserved. Uh, most, most of the legislative leaders who went to prison got out much earlier than their minimum sentences. About, they served about 75% of it based on a law that passed just in, 19, in 2008 that, that uh, basically says if you are a nonviolent offender and complete all your prison programs, you, you get an early minimum uh, departure date from prison. And uh, Bill DeWeese, the former House Speaker, got out of prison today, yes. and it was partly as a result of that law that he got out as early as he did. And, you know, he's, he's one that uh, probably is the best example of somebody that everyone considered a character, funny, you know, uh, a nice guy in a lot of ways, but there was a dark side to him, too, that I try to bring out in the book, too, uh, that had to do with his, his ego and sense of entitlement. Yes, and you, you described that very, uh, very clearly. Um, were there ever any points where you, where you felt perhaps your own uh, personal uh, connections or affinity to the individuals was, was coloring your reporting or that you needed to pull back and uh, try and create a sense of distance? Because I know it's a fairly small circle, this uh, sort of group of reporters that cover state politics. And you're, you're often um, right up next to these individuals, both uh, after hours. And uh, um, how do you maintain that, those boundaries? Well, I don't see them after hours, for one. Um, you know, my uh, contact with them is limited to the day, and it's, it's largely professional. You can't help but have some feelings towards certain people. But on the other hand, I kept my distance, and I had no qualms at all, um, you know, being uh, as objective as I could. I mean, like, let's face it, with news, uh, people say they're objective. There's always a dose of subjectivity to it, but I believe that the key is fairness, and that's what mm-hmm. you always strive for. All right. Um, let's talk a moment about Simon Cameron. You, you, you chose to, to sort of put a quote of Simon Cameron's on the very back of the book. Uh, you, you sort of begin with him. Uh, here in Harrisburg, we have Simon Cameron's uh, home, the former John Harris Mansion, as a, as a, as a historic house museum. He is memorialized uh, with our main uh, street going through the center of town. Um, but uh, he's also famous, as you quote him, for saying an honest politician is one who when bought will stay bought. Uh, can you share some stories about Simon Cameron? Well, unfortunately, I didn't devote as much space and time to Simon Cameron as I might have in the book, but he was sort of the, the grandfather of corruption, if you will, of, of other political bosses who followed. I mean, the, the story is that he was so corrupt that Abe Lincoln didn't want him in his cabinet and wanted him out. Um, And uh, historians have have grouped him together with Matthew Quay and Boise Penrose, uh, latter-day bosses, as people who just abused the the public trust and public money uh, for campaigns and their own personal enrichment. 
Yes, and uh, do you think it says something about Harrisburg that we uh, we, we celebrate him today? Uh, we preserve his home, and uh, I, I don't recall that part of the story. It was Simon Cameron who who brought the word, I think, shoddy into the English uh, lexicon during the right? Civil War. That's right, because of some of the uh, corrupt uh, contracts that were signed for uh, uniforms for soldiers during the war using cheap uh, cloth, and that's, that's where the word shoddy really uh, uh, came into being. Um, there are lots of other examples, but, um, uh, but he's sort of the grandfather of them all. Yes, and he it, is. Yeah, and as we move forward, uh, I think it's fair to note uh, that, uh, that you talk a little bit briefly about Harvey Taylor. We ought, to, we ought to mention Harvey Taylor. Can you tell the audience a little bit about him? Yes, he was a, a Senate leader uh, from Harrisburg, um, the, the bridge just down the way here is named after him, the Harvey Taylor Bridge. And um, uh, he really came to my attention. I mean, I'd certainly heard of him and knew that he was a f- famous political boss. But um, uh, through another book, uh, uh, Clean Politics, Clean Water, uh, that's written by former Senator Franklin Curry. Mm-hmm. And in his book, uh, Senator Curry um, mentions that uh, uh, he'd interviewed George Leader. George Leader was a former governor of Pennsylvania who died this past year. And George Leader told Senator Curry that uh, when Harv Taylor was uh, uh, the political boss, he had control. He had an insurance company mm-hmm. and had control of the insurance for all the, the state vehicle fleet, everything. All went through Harvey Taylor. And why? Was it to enrich himself? No, apparently it all went for campaign money that he used to dole out uh, to other senators to help them get reelected, what we might call whams today. I mean, certainly if anybody did that today, they'd be facing conflict of interest charges, minimum ethics commission, most likely federal court. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but in his day, he was able to do that. Now, I interviewed George Leader right before he died and confirmed that with him. Is that what, what you found out? Yes. And I said, well, h- how do you know that? And he said, well, we investigated it when he was governor. And he said, that, is, that was our finding. Well, Harvey Taylor is something of a legend around uh, here in Midtown Harrisburg. Uh, we, we actually have a, a portrait of him above the bar. Uh, it's meant ironically, uh, but uh, discovered at a local rummage, rummage sale. Uh, and uh, uh, the uh, Republican Club here, the West End Republican Club, where he doled out a lot of this patronage, was uh, literally uh, just up the street, one block from the wow. bookstore. Uh, and there are famous stories of him walking around the Broad Street Market on Election Day. I mean, he, he sort of mastered the art of, uh, of patronage here in, uh, in, on the local level and then took that to uh, the great heights of power on the state level. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I just remember Franklin Curry telling me that nothing could get through the Senate without going through Harvey Taylor, period, which sounds a lot like Vince Fumo in his mm-hmm. later years. And uh, I think Harvey Taylor's a, uh, one individual, and we uh, talked to Michael Barton about uh, about this. Who's a local somebody who is definitely deserving of a biography yes. and uh, more historical research. A great a great story there. Um, let's fast forward a little bit to uh, to Bud Dwyer, and I think uh, I think that case uh, really has penetrated the popular consciousness perhaps more than any uh, in yes, in yeah, recent right. years. Um, uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about Bud? Bud Dwyer was a former state senator from Meadville. He was elected state treasurer. Um, I, I knew him quite well. Um, as state treasurer, he was a 
top-ranking official in the Republican Party and was very accessible to reporters, talked to him quite a bit on different political stories. Uh, everybody liked Bud Dwyer. He's a very affable guy, big guy, uh, looked like a, a, a farm kid that he was, you know, from, from Meadville. And uh, he got into trouble um, when uh, uh, a guy named John Torquato, whose father had been a political boss out in Johnstown, uh, came in from California where he had um, his residence, and Mr. Torquato came in with a computer company, uh, and he sought contracts for this company called Computer Technology Associates. And uh, th there was a lot of... Uh, money flowing around, and the, and the allegation was that, that Torquato was offering bribes to anybody who would give him a contract on that. So at one point, he gets to talking to Bud Dwyer, and um, uh, there were several meetings, but at one point offers a $300,000 bribe, at which point, according to an FBI transcript that I read, Bud Dwyer says, no quid pro quo, no quid pro quo. Uh, he knew that that was wrong. He knew there was a danger. He was an attorney. got his law degree at at night, I guess, um, after Widener expanded here. But he knew where the line was. But Torquato kept hammering, you know, and trying to get this contract. He eventually got Bud Bob Asher uh, to agree. And Bob Asher was, uh, so today, is, is a National Republican committee man from Pennsylvania and one of the most prodigious fundraisers for mm -hmm. Republican candidates. He certainly was for Corbett. Um, uh, Asher was convicted in court just like Bud Dwyer was. And there are a lot of people who still think that Bud Dwyer was innocent, that all of this was a setup job, that he was framed, that, that uh, former Governor Dick Thornburg, through his minions who were then prosecutors, because Thornburg had been a prosecutor, arranged to, to do Dwyer in because Dwyer had criticized Ginny Thornburg uh, for taking, using state money on trips. I think they took a trip to China. And I do remember that, that uh, uh, Thornburg in his own book, says he was furious about that. Um, but I asked Thornburg, point blank, what about this theory? Did you have anything to do with this? And, you know, he said, no. And, he, and I said, Byer, Dwyer even says that you called him that fat fuck, you know, all the time, that you frequently refer to him that way. He said, did you ever hear me use language with, like that? And I said, no. And I never did. Um, but to this day, we don't really know for sure what happened. All we know is that a jury... Uh, convicted Dwyer of it. Um, they, they convicted Asher uh, of a lesser charge. And uh, it's my belief that where Bud Dwyer went wrong, regardless of whether he really agreed to take the bribe or not, is he never went to the FBI. I mean, if somebody came and offered you $300,000, the next minute you're, you're on the phone, right, saying, look, there's, this guy's offering bribes, you know. Uh, put a microphone in here. Wire me up. I mean, you would do something about it. You wouldn't just keep talking to him. So I think that was his big mistake. But I believe that when Bud Dwyer did what he finally did, which most of you in this room know, was stick a 357 Magnum in his mouth and pull the trigger on TV. Um, if, if you, it's on the internet. It's been played hundreds of thousands of times. And if you look at that video, he looks like a man who's convinced of his innocence. He really does. I mean, he thinks. I think he really believed that he hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, but then again, if you went out to Camp Hill and interviewed, you know, the inmates, 90% of them would tell you they didn't do anything wrong, and they might really believe that. There, there's a degree of denial that goes with commission of a crime that's far beyond the denial that we maybe even think of in our daily lives. So 
uh, D- Dwyer, innocent or guilty, killed himself. It was a tragedy. Um, there's, there's another whole element to that regarding the pension, which we can talk about mm-hmm. if you want to. But here, here he does this because he was afraid he was going to get a 15 to 30-year prison term. Bob Asher serves one year. He's out. And now he's a very successful businessman, again, mm-hmm. raising money for the Republican Party. So, Yeah, Asher is an interesting character. There's some other interesting characters. Uh, for those of you that haven't... Um, uh, seen the press conference or, or know the history of what happened. I mean, he, he literally re- releases all but the final page of his, uh, of his press release to the media on the day of the event, uh, which is a, a long list, uh, essentially, uh, of uh, reasons why he is, why he is innocent. Uh, the media just thinks they have you know, left out the last page. It's sloppy. Everyone is expecting him to get to the point where he resigns. And uh, eventually, well, and of course he doesn't. He pulls out a gun and he and he and he uh, shoots himself. And uh, eventually, that last page is is released, and it's all there. It's all premeditated. And the degree to which he knew all that was coming, the calmness of him during the entire event, the sort of warning people to stay back so as not to get hurt. I mean, it has it has inspired a lot of people to think that that. Um, that he was that he was in fact innocent, and a few years ago, uh, uh, just at Midtown Cinema up the street, there was a there was a documentary that came out. Uh, I think it was Innocent Man: The Life of uh, Bud Dwyer and His Family came and gathered and spoke, along with um, author uh, Bill Keesling, who's a local author and has written a book called Sins of our, the Fathers or Our Fathers, which still has a yeah. huge following on the internet. Huge following. It's one of the best sellers here at the bookstore yeah. too. Whenever uh, whenever we get it in it sells out immediately. Um, and, uh, well, one of the things about the documentary was it brought in this interesting figure, William Smith. And yes. Maybe we could talk a little bit about William, William Smith, who he was and why he's relevant still today uh, to the history of uh, this area, Dauphin County. Well, Bill Smith was a lawyer from Harrisburg. He was also chairman of the Republican Party uh, here in Dauphin County. And uh, he was the intermediary that Torquato chose to do the talking, you know, and set up the meetings for the bribes. And uh, Smith's testimony was key because uh, he at first, at his own trial, uh, had denied uh, involvement in any of this, but later at, at, at Dwyer's trial gets on, the, you know, testifies that, you know, yes, he agreed to take a bribe. So a lot of this hinged on Bill Smith, who was not exactly the most credible witness in the world, but a jury believed him. And, and, uh, um, Bill Smith uh, more recently was convicted of some other uh, felony. I can't re- recall exactly what it was for. And his his son was held on some murder charge in a South American country. Uh, well, first he accused, first he burns down a building uh, mm-hmm. to uh, uh, protect himself from uh, charges that he was uh, swindling elderly clients, and then he tries to break his son out of jail, uh, who's. Uh, who was uh, uh, convicted of murder, and there's a, a plot to break him out of prison. Venezuela, or yes, something? Yeah. yes. Um, but uh, but at any rate, in the documentary, he he says, actually, I was lying. That wasn't the case, yeah. and uh, uh, so we may never know. Yeah, and, and I watched that documentary and cite that in my bibliography. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would note that Dottie Sandusky today says that her husband is innocent sure. as well. So. Well, but he was, uh, I mean, he was convicted largely on Smith's testimony, right? Largely. Largely. And Smith has said he was lying, and uh, I mean, certainly... He said it three different ways. That's right. He didn't do it. Yes, he did it, and then, you know, it wasn't true. Right. 
And what was the supposed role of, of Leroy Zimmerman in all of that, another, another person with strong local connections? Well, it was peripheral to all of it. It really had to do with uh, Leroy Zimmerman was the attorney general at the time, and his press secretary uh, was somebody who was supposedly offered uh, a bribe by Torquato, and uh, Zimmerman came out later and said that uh, you know, he, he didn't take it. I'm trying to remember his name, Patrick uh, Boyle, I believe it was. Uh, so it had more to do with his press secretary, but he was implicated in a way that an attorney general shouldn't be drawn into some issue like that, but he was never found guilty of anything or convicted of any wrongdoing or even charged. Mm-hmm. And as you say, uh, the reason that, one of the reasons that Dwyer takes his life is so that his family will get his pension because uh, um, he is going to be sentenced the next day, and if he is sentenced, uh, he would lose his pension. And one of the, uh, one of the, in the final chapter of your book, you talk about possible reforms that could, uh, that could uh, lessen the amount of corruption. One of those is uh, reforming the pension system. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, under Pennsylvania law, you, uh, uh, there are certain crimes that result in automatic loss of pension, and those have to do with, with abuse of your office, theft of money, um, you know, I, you, could, you could molest a child or even kill someone and not necessarily lose your pension, but it's if you abuse your office, you, you're, you're at risk of losing your pension. Bill DeWeese lost his pension. John Purcell lost his pension. The only one out of that whole group of legislators uh, who didn't was Bob Mello, only because he's still appealing it before the pension board. I don't know how that's going to work out, but um, you know that reminds me that basically one of the, the facts that we have here through modern history is that we have uh, eight uh, legislative leaders who were in prison at the same time, and uh, six have now been released. We're down to two who remain. Mike Vion, uh, former House Democratic whip. This is a humidor he has from... We'll get to that. Yes. yes that's coming. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure you will. Yeah. And... and um, uh, the um, uh, one other, um, so, so there are two remaining, six are out, and where we stand today is that since 2007, 15 legislators have been charged with crimes, and 11 of those have been convicted. Let's, uh, let's move forward in time and talk a little bit about Ernie Priate and that particular case. And uh, one of the things that I think is of interest to our audience here is the role that uh, several reporters of the Patriot News played in breaking that case, both uh, Pete Shelley and uh, Pete Shalom, who I believe uh, Priate worked very hard to discredit. You talk about that a little bit in in the book. Can you you talk about some of the the things that those reporters encountered uh, and maybe that perhaps even you have encountered in your own life when you've been hot on the the trail of, of corruption? Well... First of all, Ernie was a really aggressive politician. I mean, if it was pushing for something for himself or protecting himself in some way, he would come at you like uh, the, the, the uh, combat Marine that he'd been in Vietnam. And, and he, mm-hmm. he uh, you know, was just unrelenting in the degree that, to which he went after Shellam and Shelley to try to discredit them. And uh, th- there were periods where I wonder how they got through it because he was not only going to their publisher, he was you know, just d- d- doing all these things that, to try to pull the rug out from under him. His press secretary told him at one point that the federal grand jury was about to wrap up and, and um, you know, acquit them or whatever, you know, uh, uh, clear pre of everything. 
right when they were about to write another big story. And that leaves you like, what do you do? I mean, here he's officially telling me that, you know, there's nothing to this. The grand jury's going to drop it. Usually, and in this case, U.S. attorneys like David Barish don't talk to you. You know, they won't tell you even off the record what's going on. Barish to this day won't do that because um, I've tried. Um, but Ernie um, got in trouble because when he was the uh, uh, Lackawanna County District Attorney, uh, he had some close associations with video poker operators. Video poker is illegal in Pennsylvania, and uh, Ernie was taking cash from these video poker operators and not reporting it on his campaign finance report. Now, the allegation that, that, that followed him and came out in a Pennsylvania Crime Commission report, which, interestingly enough, Ernie led the charge to get rid of, and he did get rid of it, um, was that, that he had made a deal with these video poker operators. If I'm attorney general, I'll go light on you guys. I'll make sure there's no problems for you. To this day, he denies that that took place. He portrays what, what happened to him as largely a, a technicality, an election law error that he had to you know, uh, sign off on. Basically, it was a mail fraud charge that you know, Barish, uh, the U.S. attorney, decided, as a lot of prosecutors will do, that it's better to take a felony conviction um, and, and dismiss the other charges and not spend the next two, three, maybe even four years in court. And Ernie would have done that, clearly. He would have appealed the whole way up through. In the end, Ernie had to spend a little more than a year at a federal prison. Uh, he went to Duluth, Minnesota. He told me it was you know, 12 or 13 feet of snow on the ground when he got there. I think that's an exaggeration, but probably when you pull in and it's piled up, you know, it probably looks like that or feels like it. And basically, most of the time that he was there, he washed dishes uh, in the prison. Um, prisoners got on to the fact that he was uh, a prosecutor. He was a little worried for a while, but after he helped a couple guys with their appeals and won a quick habeas corpus for a pretty popular prisoner, he said he had it made the rest of the way. And he really sort of uh, changed in prison and afterwards, did he not? I mean, he's been, he, 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 spent, he spent a good deal of time trying to um, uh, shed light on, on the conditions of prison. I, I believe he did. And I saw him right after he got out, and I talked to him two or three times for the book. And he, he still maintains that, that you know, what he saw in prison convinced him that, that you know, the incarceration rate is just too high in Pennsylvania. We throw too many people behind bars for offenses that shouldn't be you know, a state prison or federal prison offense, and that, that uh, conditions of inmates are important to him. So he's basically the best friend of the Pennsylvania Prison Society at this mm -hmm. point. But the, uh, the Patriot News comes off fairly well in th this particular story in that it stood by its reporters. It didn't bow to the pressure. Ha have you ever had um, uh, a, a powerful politician go to your editor, try and discredit you, hire a, I don't know, private detective to, to watch your, your, your every motion? Um, to, to what extent have you felt that uh, people have tried to fight back in that manner? Oh, several times. Never a private detective, fortunately. Um, yeah. You know. Nobody snooping around. That was like the that. extreme, but you it, can, it was. Yeah. But uh, um, well, Vince Fumo, uh, it's a matter of record, used to use uh, Senate money, tax dollars, to hire a private detective to look into former girlfriends and and other political enemies. So it's not uncommon. You know, it's happened. Uh, but no, uh, certainly I've had people go to uh, publishers and you know try to get you fired. You know, to conjure up some you know mistake that you've made is, or, or uh, try to establish a pattern of behavior that they say is unfair. 
But if you're doing your job and you're careful and you're, you're fair um, most of the time, you, you can combat that kind of thing and expose it for what it is. Mm-hmm. But I imagine the pressure can be enormous. It can be. Uh, did anyone try and put pressure on you not to publish this book? Um, only one person, and I won't, won't go into it, but um, uh, it was just a, let's just put it this way, a letter that I got from one of the people who, whose brother was in prison, and he told me what I could do with the book. Okay. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's keep going. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about Tom Druce. Uh, and I remember this story vividly. Uh, my wife does, too. I mean, this really captured the headlines here locally. You have, um, well, let, let, t- tell the story of Tom Druce. I knew Tom Druce as uh, the uh, political director of the state Republican Party. He was a great source for a lot of reporters. He was a, a rising star in the Republican Party, a very nice guy, very bright and articulate. And he was somebody you could go to, and he could really articulate what the Republican message was for any election and what they were trying to do. He was elected to uh, the state house from Bucks County, and we were all sorry to see that happen because we wouldn't be using him as much as a source. And um, um, uh, one night on, of all places, Cameron Street, mm-hmm. um, he was driving through there and uh, apparently was not alone in the car. And... Um, uh, hit uh, a man who was uh, um, had walked out into the street in front of him. And he, he hit this man and killed him, and he claimed that he thought he hit a sign, and he kept going. And he, he never stopped. And if he had stopped, a lot of people think that maybe he would have salvaged his career. Maybe he wouldn't have gone to prison. Uh, maybe he could have copped a plea for involuntary manslaughter, if people believe the story. But... He launched an elaborate cover-up that involved taking his state-paid rental car and trading it in, and you know, but first fixing it up and getting the, the, the paint fixed on the right side. And he went to all these lengths to try to cover up the crime, and that is insurance fraud. And Tom Druce wouldn't even be in my book on corruption if it wasn't for that mm-hmm. cover-up. As bad as what sure. he did, you know, I mean, he's worse. He did worse than any of these guys. He he killed someone. You know, that's the worst thing you could but do. But another example that the cover yeah. up is, is in some cases another worse example. Than, yeah, uh, and certainly uh, and well, that brings us uh, chronologically in your book up to the pay raise. And really, the thesis, one of the theses in your books, is that the backlash about the uh, middle of the night pay raise. Uh, is what really uh, leads to uh, the ramping up of Bonusgate and Computergate because so many legislators begin to feel threatened uh, that they're going to um, actually lose their election, uh, that they have to sort of uh, kick it into high gear with this this massive political operation. But let's let's start with the with with the pay raise and how that came to be. Do you, did you um, where were you on the night that they voted uh, the pay raise? Were you? Um, I was at my desk. Uh, yeah. in the middle of the night, uh, trying to make sense out of of uh, th- this bill that they finally released an hour or two after it had passed. Uh, and uh, an hour or two after it had been approved by committee. What happened is, you know, there had been talk of a pay raise for two weeks during the the last weeks of the budget uh, in 2005, uh, but you could never get anyone to go on record except for Governor Rendell, who said, yeah, it'd be great, you know, I'll sign a pay raise if they approve some of my social programs and spend more on on welfare and do the things that he wanted. Um, But 
Rendell was encouraging in this, but uh, meanwhile, there was no real, there was no document. You couldn't say how much of a pay raise. There was no public hearing. There was no public debate about it at all because it was all hidden. Uh, so on the night of July the 7th, 2005, um, you know, we hear they're unleashing this pay raise. Uh, they hold a, a conference committee, uh, which is uh, six uh, legislators, three from uh, the House, three from the Senate, who get together and unanimously approve this in a matter of seconds. And then the worst thing was, after that happened, even then, they didn't have a copy of the bill. And we're like, well, what did you approve? <laughs> well, you know, they just walked out of the room. And only Senator Mello who eventually went to prison on something unrelated, uh, had the guts to stand there and talk to a few of us and tell us roughly it was a 17 to 34% pay raise and you know, provided a few other details, then left. And uh, uh, it just unleashed uh, uh, a reform movement in Pennsylvania like we'd never seen before. Now, I remember about a week after this happened, um, I did a story, and I talked to Terry Madonna, who wrote the mm -hmm. preface for my book, and is a great political analyst, and he believed that this would just die over in a matter of a week or two. Why? Because they always had in the past. They would just blow over. But he ignored, and I think I did too in my analysis, the Internet, and just how much of a difference that made, that people were in touch with each other, and groups were forming on the Internet, and, you know, planning protests and doing all this, and legislators just had no idea. And the thing that really got people upset about it was the uh, way they did this that, that provided uh, the um, uh, unvouchered expenses, they called it, and it allowed legislators to uh, take the money, the amount of the pay raise that they would get up front um, during their current term of office. Now, the Constitution, state Constitution, prohibits a legislator from getting a raise uh, in that term of office. He has to stand for election to then get the raise. But no, they wanted it early, so they, they uh, labeled it unvouchered expenses like it was something different. It wasn't. Um, but it did launch this protest, and the backlash was horrendous uh, for legislators. Uh, I remember even talking to somebody on Rendell's staff in late July of 2005, and he said, there's a rebellion out there. I said, really, you think it's that bad? And he said, yeah. And in part, it's so bad because it's bipartisan. It's yeah. uh, uh, you have uh, figures on the right and the left it's equally true. outraged. And whenever that happens, it's a, it's uh, it's obviously a sort of perfect storm. And there are some pretty amazing characters on the other side of this. I know we spent a, a lot of the book talking about um, the corrupt characters, but uh, there's some people like Eric Epstein and Gene Stilp, both friends of the bookstore, who've been been here for a lot of different functions, who really rise to the occasion. You call Eric. Uh, a uh, basically, you, you call him uh, an accomplished Nazi hunter. I mean, that, that's that's really that's what and, he reminded and, me. Of. Yeah, reminding you of that. And 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 Gene Stilp, another one who uh, who clearly uh, won't let anything go. Can you talk about those folks? Yeah, the reason I called him an accomplished Nazi yeah. hunter he reminds me of that uh, people who work for that uh, office in the Justice Department who hunt, hunt down you exactly. know former Nazis because even to this day. Right. He's keeping track of, of uh, who kept the unvouchered expense money and how much that totals and how much they walked away with through this pay raise. And he tracks them every year and puts out a report about it. And it's embarrassing to them, you know, I would think. Uh, maybe they don't care. But uh, he, he does that. And uh, he, he was a real force in that. And to this day remains one of the few, quote, reformers who, you know, is willing to speak out and criticize people in both parties for 
uh, skullduggery of various sorts. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, you quote him, I assume you've interviewed him a bit for the book. He's in he Numerous repeatedly. Uh, what about Gene Stilp and the Pink Pig? Now, Gene takes a lot of flack from uh, uh, people in office who think that he just files these worthless lawsuits that eat up all this uh, taxpayers' money to defend them, and, and, and you know, they're, they're pointless and they're, they're frivolous. Well, Gene, was, Gene has a law degree, and he, he does know what he's doing, and he won a case that most people aren't even aware of that they, they had this odorous rule at the State Ethics Commission that if you filed a complaint about a public official, you weren't allowed to talk about it. Well, there is this thing called the First Amendment, you know, and uh, Stilp filed suit over that and eventually did win a case in the Supreme Court that, yes, if you go to the Ethics Commission, you can talk about your own case. Even people who go testify before a grand jury are allowed to walk out and tell you what they testified to. The prosecutors and the, the defense lawyers, the officers of the court, aren't allowed to talk about it, but you can talk about your own complaint, mm-hmm. one would hope, in this country always. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was instrumental in all of this. So was Tim Potts. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were others. But as you pointed out, mm-hmm. you had the right and the left together. You had mm-hmm. the Commonwealth Foundation mm-hmm. and Common Cause, you know, uniting right. to try to, to, to stop this pay raise. Culminated with a huge rally up here in September of 2005, about a thousand people, maybe more, on the Capitol steps flowing out into the street, and uh, David Brightbill, the former senator from Lebanon, was so upset with the headcounts and what the media was reporting that he, he got a photograph of it and required his staff to stay there and put it on, put it in little, all the people in little grids, you know, so they could count like there were three or four people here, four or five people here, to try to minimize you know, how many people had been at this thing, as if that mattered at that point. It didn't really matter. And your one radio host here from Harrisburg. Uh, uh, what Mr. Was Bob Durgan. Yeah, Bob Durgan. Um, you know, was at that rally and, you know, was charging back and forth from Purcell's office to other leaders demanding answers to all this. Well, they weren't coming out. They weren't talking to anybody. And Purcell went downhill pretty fast, all of that. Being from Philadelphia, he thought this was all going to blow over for sure. And he came back here in September. He'd been in China, and uh, people just pursued him unrelentingly, you know. And, and um, you know, he, I, I think for a lot of these people, it was their downfall. If it, if it, now you point out, as I, I do mention in the book, that it led them to, to, out of fear to raise greater sums of money. There was testimony to that effect mm-hmm. in, in, in the uh, uh, bonus gate trial. But it wasn't the only factor, but, you know, it was, it was like the, Everything just sort of unraveled for them. But, but it, it's scary. So two-part question. So the first thing then is, as you say, well, maybe uh, those from Philadelphia think, well, you know, this is going to blow over. Is there something about central Pennsylvania then, uh, the, the, the local radio hosts, the, 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 the left and the right, the activists? Is there, is there something um, particular which, which sort of um, combats the corruption of that time? And uh, uh, are we... Are we, are we fortunate that the Capitol uh, was here in Harrisburg and that there were people willing to protest? Well, it's a good thing it wasn't in Philadelphia, as some have proposed. Um, yeah. uh, there was one recent theory by a Harvard professor who says that uh, um, you have less corruption uh, in, when the capitals are in the largest cities in the state where there's more media attention on them. Well, God sakes, you know, we wouldn't want that in, in Pennsylvania. I don't, 
think that we would disagree work. with that. Yeah, I was trying to say the opposite, though. Do you yeah. think there is something? Yeah. Well, I think it was, uh, but it wasn't just central Pennsylvania. It was also western Pennsylvania, where yeah. it was also inflamed. Of course, mm-hmm. that's the home of the Whiskey Rebellion. And yes. The, 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 and you had talk show hosts out there who were inflaming it. So it was the, the combination of the two, mm-hmm. I think, that really uh, acted as an unknowing partnership to, to undo this. And... They do lose. I mean, legislators lose across the uh, across the Commonwealth in the next election. So who loses? Who loses because of the pay raise in that first election? Well, there were about fifty House members uh, who retired, but most notably um, in the primary, um, uh, Bob Jubilee, the former Senate President Pro Tem, and Chip Brightbill, the former Senate Majority Leader, both of whom were active in you know engineering the pay raise, were defeated. It was a huge shock. Uh, Then in the fall. Unprecedented, right? I, I, oh, yeah. Yes. You, you never see primary defeats, for the most part, of incumbent legislators, much less legislative leaders. And they knew that it was coming. They had repealed the pay raise by then. Jubilee had seen polls that just showed him going you know, down you know, in a big way. They tried to you know, repair it, and they couldn't. Um, and then Vion, uh, went, during the repeal, uh, former House Democratic Whip Mike Vion was the only legislator in the House or Senate, who voted against the repeal. And he wore that as a badge of honor that, you know, if we did this pay raise, we're going to stick to it. He didn't say this. He didn't talk about it. But everyone knew that's what he thought, that he was a stand-up guy. And he, he voted for this, and he was going to stick by it. Well, he stuck by it, all right. And, and it was un- his undoing. It was really one of the things that helped defeat him. So let's talk about Mike Vion for a moment. I, I did bring up a, a, a prop to uh, to the to the talk today. Uh, this is a, a Mike Vion's humidor. Uh, it says uh, Mike R. Vion, Pennsylvania Democratic Whip. Got a uh, cre- uh, the coat of arms for Pennsylvania and says uh, what does it say on your side of the box? Virtue. And on mine it says independence and uh, uh, and liberty. So. Uh, Basically, the story there is uh, sometime after he went to jail, we got a call from his housekeeper uh, from his house that was just up here on North 2nd Street uh, saying they had a whole bunch of books. Would you like to come uh, and uh, purchase some things? Uh, Apparently, uh, the housekeeper had been given the contents of the house as a sort of severance for years of service um, and uh, got a chance to buy his library, and we still have a lot of of the books there. But there were a few items lying around, including uh, this humidor, a few that I sold to James Roxbury of Roxbury News, uh, who was an avid collector of political memorabilia. But Vion was quite a character. Uh, he, had, he had two license plates. One of them said Vion, and then the other uh, vanity plate just said Cigar King. And I think uh, he, uh, Smoke, you've got a wonderful photo in the book of uh, one of their staff receipt, uh, retreats with everyone. Uh, oh, yeah, they uh, all had with cigars. A, with, a, with a cigar. Get, tell us about Mike Vion. Mike Vion uh, came in uh, to the house as, as a, like a lot of these guys did, with his eyes wide open and as sort of a reformer. He wanted to change things in Harrisburg. Now, he was, uh, he was like this with organized labor. That's, that's really how he got elected out in his district. But he came in with, with uh, good intentions by, by all accounts. And Mike Vion was a very good legislator. He, he was a good uh, tactician. Uh, he, he was a good analyst. He understood things that other people didn't understand in terms of what the other party was doing, what the governor was doing, how it all fit together. So he quickly rose up through the ranks and eventually became Democratic Whip. He was known for his uh, really expensive suits, uh, pinstripe suits. Some people called them pimp suits, uh, and his uh, cowboy boots. He would always he had a collection of them in his office, 
and they were elaborately engraved uh, cowboy boots. Uh, I was not aware of this, um, but um, uh, never saw that in his office. But uh, Vion um, uh, was someone who he was usually very quiet. Some people think he was even a bit shy, but he came from the Beaver Valley. He played football at the same high school that Joe Namath did, uh, had the same coach that Joe Namath did. And it, when, you, when you, from the Beaver Valley and Western Pennsylvania in general, high school football is everything, you know, and, and being a tough guy is everything. You got the steel mills, the whole bit, and Mike was every, every one of those things. Um, I even have an anecdote in the book that uh, a, after he was here and they were out playing basketball on a, on a court at Harrisburg Community College, um, he got elbowed and ch- chipped a tooth, knocked a piece of his tooth out, and he took it out, just laid it down, and kept playing. And, you know, that's sort of the way. You, you know, it's a macho thing. You don't, it's going to cry or, you know, no. I mean, he's going to go back and play basketball. And that's the way he was. And uh, a lot of people admired him for that. Uh, Pete DeCourcy, the, the, the late uh, journalist from uh, Capital Wire, uh, wrote, and I quote him in the book, as saying that uh, to a lot of younger legislators, uh, Vion was the Fonz from Happy Days. I mean, he was the, the guy who was cool that you wanted to be like. And they would all, all go to his office at nights and uh, sit in there. And sometimes he would you know, expound and lecture to them on what was going to happen the next day and what was going on in politics. Some days he'd pr- provide meals at taxpayers' expense. Most often they went out and played basketball and then came back and talked about uh, politics. But Vion was a good legislator, but he did have a sense of entitlement. He went awry in his final five to ten years, I I would guess it was, uh, where he started thinking, like a lot of these guys do, that uh, what state money is their own. Um, He explained, there was was an explanation provided by a witness at the Beaver Initiative for Growth Trial, a second trial, where Vion was uh, convicted. Uh, that Mike Vion sat down one day and drew the circle, and uh, he wrote MRV in the middle of it, his initial. Then around the outside of it, he wrote, you know, district staff, Harrisburg staff, uh, Beaver Initiative for Growth, and other nonprofits that he had. And he explained to this person that, look, the point of all of this, all of it, is to elect me. That's why we're doing this, and that's why we're getting this money. Oh, okay, so. You know, the, 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 he, he came to that way of thinking. So, eventually, he is uh, convicted for having approved uh, the use of $1.4 million in tax money um, through his top aide, Mike Manzo, his chief of staff, who's another regular around Harrisburg who you may see in the store here. Um, and uh, uh, Mike was a uh, favorite of reporters, a real nice guy, uh, you know, still uh, makes the rounds occasionally. But... Um, this money went as bonuses to Democratic staffers who would work on campaigns. They didn't put up a sign and say, this money's available. They just started giving it to certain people so the word would get around. And within two or three years, everybody was signing up to work uh, campaigns because they knew they would get a couple extra thousand dollars at the end of the year. Now, you might say, what's wrong with that? Well, it was tax money, and it was state tax money going for campaigns. As I've often pointed out in different talks about this, Pennsylvania voters never approved public financing of campaigns like some other states have. We could have. Some liberal groups think we should, but we never did. But it didn't matter because they were just using tax money anyway for campaigns. Not just him, but 
John Purcell used $10 million mm -hmm. worth for campaigns, Republicans. So. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the, it, and it's really the Vion trial which, which uh, you know, is covered in great depth and which really brings a lot of this to light, right? Right. And uh, it, it, it's also that trial uh, where <laughs> you talk rather humorously uh, in a section in, uh, entitled Twitter Time, you know, that uh, we really begin to see, uh, because Judge Lewis allows Twitter in the courtroom, this sort of instantaneous uh, uh, reporting of the corruption trials. It was an experiment. Um, you know, the, the oddity is that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, is, is uh, televised. Their, their uh, hearings on TV, you can turn on and watch them. You can watch the other court, appellate courts on TV, but you can't use an electronic device in the courtroom. That doesn't make any sense to me somehow. Mm -hmm. seems inconsistent. But the concern is that defense lawyers, prosecutors would be concerned that jurors would see testimony before they would go in. You know, and that's a legitimate concern, but... You think maybe you could take the cell phones away from the jurors, you know, while they're in the waiting waiting area. You'd think, but um, anyway, uh, he did allow it. It was interesting. Uh, many people at the Capitol, including Tom Corbett, uh, were following this um, uh, on Twitter. And for Tom Corbett, a lot was at stake. He was running for governor. Um, he, he was the leading Republican candidate for governor primary. Uh, as Mike Vion, a prominent Democrat, was on trial as a result of a case that he had brought while he was attorney general. And to these guys from out of town, like Joel Sansone, uh, Vion's lawyer, and Dan Rainack from Phoenix, who came in for it, they were blown away by this, that, you know, th th here's their client on trial, in effect, by the governor. And they, so they saw this completely as a political trial, and Vion completely as a political prisoner, uh, the prosecutors presented it as just a, a criminal syndicate. Right. And this is all over the course of 2007, right? Uh, when is, what, are the, what, what month is the trial? The story oh, no, breaks. No, the trial is in 2010. 2010. The story breaks in 2007. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, is, is, Vino the, um, is, is Vino the first major person to come to trial? Uh, no, he's not. Uh, prior to that, uh, a uh, former state senator by the name of Sean Romaley, uh, is the way it's pronounced, is uh, brought to trial for uh, having taken a ghost job, they called it, uh, that he took a job in Vion's district office to use uh, for campaigning, but he didn't mm -hmm. really do any work. He just used it to campaign. Well, something was amiss when you sat through this trial because Sean Romaley just didn't look like the kind of guy who would do that. And I know that's simple to say, you know, how people look, but he looked like, you know, Mr. Clean. And, and wondering, well, how, you know, what's, what's amiss here? Well, uh, they had a very weak case against him. It turns out that, you know, there was testimony that he did work in the office. He also did some campaigning, uh, but, you know, it wasn't like it was a ghost job where you don't show up mm -hmm. at all. And um, uh, his def defense attorney didn't want to put him on the stand to be cross-examined, so he put his mom on the stand. And she brought tears to everybody's eyes just about, about what a wonderful kid Sean had been and uh, played clarinet and soccer in the school band. And, you know, he, he really did seem to be a decent guy, was voted most ethical uh, in, in his senior class and at, uh, at college, would drive home on the weekends to stay away from the rowdy parties there. Uh, seemed like a genuinely good man. Um, and the jury somehow saw that and they acquitted him. Well... That sent shockwaves through the attorney general's office right. that here they've lost their first major case. 
and uh, there, there was a huge reshuffling of the prosecutors to bring the Philly guys in to handle the next case on Vion because they knew they'd be dealing with some pretty tough uh, defense lawyers. Mm-hmm. So a lot is riding on the case. A lot. And uh, let's, uh, let's jump to a couple other uh, uh, you know, figures at the same time. So Vian, one of Vian's defenses is uh, uh, that he's just following orders or that uh, Deweese uh, really uh, did it all and yes. uh, uh, he's just, he's right. just you know, right. and, talk and about that defense. Sure. Uh, the defense was that, that uh, as Mario Catabiani, the inquirer, wrote in his lead, um, Bill Deweese did it. That was Vion's defense. Mm-hmm. Now, Bill DeWeese took the fifth. Uh, they brought him in early one morning to the courthouse, and he went to uh, Judge Lewis's office, away from reporters, couldn't see him, and he went in there and took the Fifth Amendment and never testified at the trial. Um, it would have been a hard case. To, it was hard to prove because, by all accounts, DeWeese was a detached leader. He left the details to Vion. He he didn't. He loved the the perks and the luxuries of the job and the travel and you know schmoozing with uh, different people and going to parties and all of that. But he didn't like the the daily grind of you know legislation, all the things that Vion thrived in. So it was a hard case to accept that that uh, uh, Vion that Deweese directed all of this. However, you know if the issue is did Deweese know about the bonuses? He maintained strongly that he didn't, but there is certainly some evidence that he did. There were a couple emails including one that I quote in the book mm-hmm. uh, that uh, suggests that he knew about it at, at the very least. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're pretty merciless on DeWeese in the book. I mean, he, he does not come up, off across, uh, I would say, uh, well at all. Um, uh, you describe him as uh, somebody who uh, loves to hear himself talk more than anything else in the world. Um, somebody who, uh, you know, would spend all of his time memorizing multisyllabic words just to impress people. Um, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying those aren't true. I'm just saying, uh, uh, and uh, right, and also a, yeah. a megalomaniac and a few well, other things. All right, but but uh, that said, I, I really liked Bill DeWeese and still do. I thought he, I mean, he, he's a very entertaining and, and funny guy. He just, you know, went off track like a lot of these other guys did for being there too long, and then thought that it all belonged to them, that it was a sense of entitlement. Is that the moral of this story? I believe it is. That and the fact that it's not going to change unless something dramatic takes place. I'm sure you're aware of the news that came out over the past week or two about the sting operation Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, and there's a lot of flap over who shut it down and why and what happened with it. But I often felt that the only way to really change this place up here dramatically was to have a massive sting operation where FBI agents or attorney general's agents would be offering cash for legislation and all these other things. They're doing it now in other states. In California, it just took place. Uh, And there was a plan to do that. Uh, Frank Fina, the chief deputy prosecutor, had a memo that I reported on that outlined, you know, setting up a business right near the Capitol that would be, quote, you know, a a business for this lobbyist. wouldn't be real, but it would be used as the base of operations, uh, staffed by agents and as secretaries and um, to uh, launch a, a sting operation on a big scale, not just uh, the bribes that were offered in Philadelphia. And uh, we're, 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 we're winding down, but let, let's just uh, touch briefly on a few uh, local characters that I think will be of interest to the audience. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, Kevin Sedella's role. Uh, he's a local political consultant here. He testified at length at the DeWeese trial. Yeah, uh, 
Kevin Seidella uh, was, um, uh, I believe, the biggest reason that Deweese was convicted. Uh, and the reason for that is that, that uh, Kevin Seidella was a computer analyst. He, he was a campaign guy, but he was very good at computer data, getting databases together on campaign fundraising to know who'd given, targeting who you could go after. Well, Kevin Seidella did that kind of work right outside Bill DeWeese's office. He sat right there and did it all day long. And Bill DeWeese prided himself on the fact that um, he testified voluntarily before a grand jury and was never indicted or convicted for perjury. And that's true. He says, I told the truth in there. Well, I believe that he did tell the truth in there. And one of the things that he admitted was that Kevin Seidella was doing this campaign work for him outside his office. So even if you believe, and, and a lot of people did believe that maybe his attorney, Bill Kostopoulos, created reasonable doubt about the district office staff doing all this campaigning at state expense, there was a, some doubt about that. Even if you believe that, by his own admission, Kevin Seidella was doing it. He committed a crime. He admitted it before the grand jury, and they threw that back in his face hard in the closing arguments, and it was very difficult to win at that point considering that. Another uh, uh, local figure of note that uh, appears in the book is Joe Solomon, who's our local district justice for Midtown recently. Uh, that particular position was uh, eliminated, but you have a, a chapter there about uh, called The Wisdom of uh, Solomon, or a little segment talking about it. A lot of the, the famous photos that we have of Vion and everyone else are right here uh, walking into Solomon's courtroom. Tell us a little bit about uh, Joe Solomon. Well, I don't know Joe Solomon personally. I only know mm -hmm. the degree to which he, he PO'd the Attorney General's office is beyond belief because what happened was uh, there was a preliminary hearing for the bonus gate defendants um, uh, up here at, uh, uh, actually it was on the big case, I believe, yeah, Beaver Initiative for Growth, and Solomon dismissed the case. And, the, you know, he said something, uh, you know, afterwards about there had not been, uh, um, had not been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, you know, that, that's the standard at trial, not right. um, at a, at a, at a preliminary hearing where it's only, you know, is there probable cause to hold this defendant for court? Well, in any case, this case is dismissed, and the, the Attorney General's office people went berserk, and they refiled all the charges. Uh, they got it to a different magistrate where it was upheld and then sent over to court. But that left a real uh, bitter peace in the mouths of the defense attorneys for Vion, who felt they had kicked the charges there and that it should have happened. Now, understand that it is highly unusual to ever see charges um, dismissed completely by a district magistrate at that level. It just doesn't happen from, you know, one time out of 100, one time out of 1,000, I don't know. But uh, there were some questions, too, about Solomon knew some of these people pretty well. As a Harrisburg guy, mm -hmm. I guess he did, uh, um, and had been at the wedding of one of the defendants or something. So... Um, and of course, uh, uh, shortly after that, his uh, his district uh, uh, his district literally disappears, and he's replaced. Um, how about some of the Dauphin County judges of note? Dick Lewis. Do you have any good stories about him? Former um, district attorney um, allows Twitter in the courtroom. How did he handle the cases? And maybe you can compare him with with say Todd Hoover, one of his colleagues. Yeah. Well. Uh Rich Lewis, you know, I watched him for two months handle this case, and he is the most patient man I've ever seen. He's the most patient judge 
uh, th th there could ever be because this defense attorney from Phoenix who came in, Dan Rainack, was just a wild man. And he was, he was, uh, he was good. I mean, he was, he was a good lawyer, but he just was 100% uh, the center of, of everything in the courtroom. And he, he talked loud. He talked fast. He moved around. He got in front of people. He, he, he just you know, took over the courtroom. And uh, a lot of judges would take back control and say, sit down. And I really believe that Rich Lewis was smart, and he understood that he didn't want the, the, the record on appeal to look like the, the uh, Republican judge from uh, Dauphin County, who'd been a district attorney, who'd been a prosecutor, mm -hmm. shut down uh, the, this guy's defense. Um, so uh, he, he was very patient. I think it was on, probably until about five weeks into the trial before he finally reined him in and said, you know, look, you either stop this or uh, bring cash with you f uh, to pay your bail and a toothbrush uh, for when you go to prison tomorrow because you're going to find him in contempt. Mm -hmm. And it did calm him a little bit, but not much. <laughs> and I searched for our, our, our senator and our state rep in the, in, in the story, uh, Ron Buxton and Jeff Bacola. Bacola makes it once, briefly, as a character witness for uh, DeWeese. Do you have any stories of Bacola you'd like to share? Uh, not really in terms of the corruption. Or how, or how about Ron Buxton? I know his son Eric is uh, is involved. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew Ron and and Jeff when they were in the, the legislature, and, and Jeff, of course, ran afoul of the lawyer discipline board when he left and, and had some problem and, and took care of that, but um, they really weren't central players in all of this, and, and um, I can tell you what I think about them, but not there was no real mm -hmm. context uh, of it in the book. Mm -hmm. There were some folks that got left out of the book, right? Uh, that you maybe wish you had more. To, uh, um, Stephen Stetler, for instance. Yes. Don't see him in the book. Why was that? Uh, he, he's in the book, but only barely mentioned. One mentioned in the last page, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. It was a matter of timing Yeah. Uh, that his trial took place after I, long after yeah. I'd submitted the manuscript. Uh, in fact, after I submitted the manuscript, eight months afterwards, they, they have it edited. Uh, they're getting a, 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 a galley together, and all of a sudden, uh, there are charges announced against eight turnpike officials in a pay-to-play case. And I said, I've got to get that in the book. So I literally called down there and dictated it over the phone to the publisher to get in just a paragraph mm -hmm. towards the end about the pay-to-play. Same with uh, Stetler and same with the feast trial that uh, I didn't have the time that I wanted to, to be able to devote to that. And, and the truth of the matter is, after Purzell pled guilty, it became pretty much of an asterisk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not for Brett Fees, who's doing the hardest time of anybody, just about along with Vion. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, just last, uh, well, and then we'll take some audience questions. But uh, and I, I, I looked, I watched a, uh, in preparation for this a forum that you did on Penn Live talking about the book, and you you were asked about the Harrisburg Authority and the uh, uh, the corruption crisis that occurred in Harrisburg over the course of the uh, of this same exact period. And as I look at the timing, I wonder if. Um, uh, I wonder if it didn't get the coverage it deserved in part because there was so much uh, of a focus on the state level. And I, I remember your answer was, well, you know, I reported on the, on the state. I wasn't a local reporter. Right. Uh, I wouldn't have, uh, even if it had risen to a higher level, I still, Pittsburgh paper would not be interested in much more than a brief or, you know, inclusion in a story, you know, some, some comment about it. But I think that 
that your premise is correct. I think that the, the, all the publicity devoted to bonus gate and computer gate and all these other things probably took away from the focus of that. And the timing, too. In yeah. 2007, when I'm calling for, the, for Corbett to investigate what's going on, uh, you know, uh, is the same time that they had their hands full with, with, with basically everything else. Although there was another reporter from Pittsburgh, Dennis Roddy, who, who came up and did a lot of interviews locally and, and never produced a story. And then, of course, went on to, to work, for, uh, work for Corbett. Yeah. There, there is one, uh, one interesting connection, though, which is the law firm of Foreman and Foreman. And I really think that that is an interesting uh, story that we, uh, we ought to uh, talk just a little bit about here in sure. closing. Because it seems to me that these are twin brothers, Jeff and Bruce, very well connected. And they do very similar things, Jeff on the state level and Bruce on the local Harrisburg level. Can we talk first about Jeff? And then I'll tell you a little bit about Bruce. Yeah, I don't know that much about Bruce except that he testified against Jeff. Yeah. Uh, his twin brother testifying against him was very unusual. But uh, Jeff Foreman was the, um, ostensibly the chief of staff for Mike Vion. That was his, his title. Mike Manzo really functioned as the chief of staff for uh, uh, Vion and, and DeWeese. Uh, but Foreman was you know, a, a figure in that office that at one point was referred to as the Grim Reaper uh, because the, the um, women who, who had children... Um, and had families and needed to get home to, he would come and make a sweep through the office to grab people to get out and campaign. And they were like, you know, it's the last thing in the world they wanted to do. They had home responsibilities, and they just dreaded when when Foreman would come through and do that. Um, Foreman uh, pleaded guilty and and, um, uh, served some time, I think, just county, not not, uh, um, uh, state prison time. And then, you know, he was... uh, uh, there was testimony in the the Beaver Initiative for Growth trial that concerned him, and that's where uh, Bruce Foreman came in and testified. But I don't know Bruce; I never met him. Jeffrey, I had some dealings with. What, what can you say about him? Yeah, well, it, you described Jeffrey Foreman as the one who was basically quote trying to build a trail of deniability. He was the lawyer. He sort of knew it was wrong, yes. uh, but was working hard to uh, uh, make it seem okay. Yeah, uh, he was apparently manufacturing time slips so that people could say that, that uh, they built up this comp time to go do the campaign work. And, you know, they were, so the testimony was a lot of people would just sit around till 10, 11 o'clock at night while the legislature was in session doing nothing but building up comp time that could be, then use, be, be used for campaigns. Mm-hmm. Well, Bruce does the same thing for the authority. I mean, he basically uh, writes the opinion uh, sort of justifying the artifact purchasing. I will note there, uh, you talk about $14 million, uh, you know, uh, in in theft of public money here. Very conservative. Yeah, very conservative. Well, far less than was spent uh, illegally in Harrisburg on artifacts or on uh, fake fees or on all sorts of, of other things. And now... It is truly a state issue because uh, the state has had to come to the rescue and uh, basically uh, bail out the city in many respects as a part of uh, the recovery plan. And they should do that, of course. I'm not arguing that they shouldn't, but it is. there was a cost to that. There was a state cost, and there was this uh, interesting uh, local connection about that particular law firm, which I think merits further um, 
discussed and in research. But there's a lot more we could talk about in the book, including uh, the uh, the sort of concluding chapter on where do we go from here. You said maybe the moral was uh, that these folks just stayed too long, and I think that was the same moral in Harrisburg. We had a mayor that just stayed too long, and it got uh, worse and wor- power. Power corrupts, and the longer that you are uh, in power, the, the more corrupted you are. I think it would take a, 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 a strong individual to withstand uh, literally decades of that constant, um, that constant position of empowerment. I think Washington really understood that when he uh, stepped away as president, and uh, I think term limits are, 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 are perhaps one of the, the lessons. But let's throw it to the audience and ask them what they think might be the lessons of, uh, of this story. Uh, and if uh, they would like any uh, further elaboration, we didn't talk about uh, FUMO. We didn't talk about a variety of other uh, individuals. And uh, behind you. Oh, hi. Um, aside from term limits, can you um, tell us about changes to um, ethics or campaign finance laws that you think could help curb potential acts of corruption among public officials? It's a good question. You know, there, there is no panacea. You know, I mean, ultimately, you could pass a thousand more laws tomorrow. You really could. And if people, you know, have greed in their hearts or want to cross the line and cheat, they will do that. And we do have that culture that propels people toward it. But there are some things that would help. And I think the one is, um, I don't. I'm not sure that term limits per se is a good idea because you do throw out a lot of good legislators you know, early on in their careers. But I think term limits for leaders would be a good idea. Um, years ago when I worked in Florida briefly, um, they would uh, alternate the speakership every two years. So you know, they would elect a new speaker every two years. So ultimately, everyone had a chance to be Speaker of the House. Not everyone was, but there was, you, you had a shot at it. Whereas here, they're, you know, a speaker, they get in, they might be there for 20, 30 years. And it, it uh, uh, decentralizes the power of leadership a little bit by doing that. I think that's one thing. Uh, initiative and referendum allowing people to put things on the ballot. Natasha, you would know better than I from California whether that on balance has been a good idea or not out there. There's a lot of crazy stuff that can happen with it. What do you think? I mean, is it... Oh, with the um, ballot initiative? Yes. Yeah, I could go either way because there's also many, many ballot initiatives that get approved that there's absolutely no financing for in the state level to actually carry out and laws get written. They're very vague and hard to... So it's tough to maybe find, strike a balance, I guess. And, yeah, yeah. It, it is. But uh, I do think that, that there are other things that, that the whole back uh, the end of the book, I have recommendations from different people you know, who, who believe that there are some of these things that could be looked at um, you know, from the left, if you will, uh, campaign finance reform, strict limits on what can be spent. Uh, a lot of conservatives don't like the idea of any limits, um, think that it should be unlimited and stay that way, and there's a Supreme Court decision to that effect that it would be tough to overcome, yet somehow the federal government still has limits on, on, on contributions. And from the right, the biggest reform that they talk about, and it's, it's not so much a conservative issue, but uh, a part-time legislature returning to the idea of... of uh, a smaller part-time legislature like New Hampshire's, perhaps that's actually larger, but uh, where people wouldn't have this as their their main job and would have other occupations and just come here for two months a year. 
might hurt business a little bit in Harrisburg. Yeah, I think you know we could we could live with that. Yeah. Uh, how about uh, the idea of giving the ethics commission some real teeth? Uh, wasn't to me one of the disappointing things of the latest uh, uh, Kathleen Kane uh, story of uh, sort of dropping that corruption probe was basically uh, her saying, "Well, we'll just refer it to the you know the ethics commission where." You know, and the Ethics Commission really can't do anything except uh, slap people on the wrist. They have no power to, to do much of anything at all. So um, how about real ethics reform? You know, that, that would be a step toward it. <clears throat> I think uh, uh, you mentioned the Ethics Commission. The one thing they typically do when it's a serious case is refer it to the Attorney General. Right. So you could see this yeah. wind up you know, getting sent back to the person who sent it there uh, for, for prosecution. I, you know... Um, or they could send it somewhere else. I don't know. But they can find people. Um, the, the House Ethics Committee ha- has a laughable uh, track record on these kind of things. They've done very little over the years. It's hard to point to any instance where they've done anything. But they would have the power through this to um, uh, publicly censure the legislators who took cash payments that are on video, if those videos, I mean, those mm-hmm. audios come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could lead to expulsion of members. Mm-hmm. So that would be a pretty serious punishment. It's not conviction of a crime, but you lose your house seat. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite a price to pay. So there is an avenue, at least through the House Ethics Committee, to do that. Whether it happens is anybody's guess. And what about a gift ban? How do you feel about that? I've long thought that's, that it's, it's a no-brainer. Uh, when the late Bob Casey was governor, he had a no-cup-of-coffee rule for members of his, his administration. He couldn't affect the legislature, but uh, for people who work for him, you were not allowed to take a cup of coffee from a lobbyist. You couldn't have a dinner. You couldn't have lunch. You couldn't accept anything, period. And if you did, you would be fired. And if you know that, you wouldn't take anything. You wouldn't want to be seen out in some restaurant you know, with, with people like that. So um, I, I think that's a good idea. I don't understand why they're still debating it, allowing various loopholes. There, there are loopholes in the gift. There is a limit now of $250 gift mm-hmm. that people can accept. But uh, that means you can take $249 cash from someone and not report it. It means you can take $10,000 cash from someone and report it as long as there's no quid pro quo. Uh, so you know, if, if, if someone wants to sign an affidavit that there was no arrangement, no quid pro quo, give you 10000 bucks. You can take the money. It's outrageous. Aren't we back to Bud Dwyer then uh, again? Yeah, we are. Yeah, okay. Uh, Other uh, questions? I'll tell you another interesting thing. I'm reading your final chapter, and we talk about a lot of different uh, things. Uh, Somebody suggested uh, amending the uh, Pennsylvania school code so that it no longer uh, allows uh, school directors to be um, uh, able to engage in self-dealing. I'm like, school directors are able to engage in self-dealing, apparently, in Pennsylvania? I didn't even know that. Who's that from? That's right in the the beginning from Bob Strauss. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Strauss directed a lot of his comments at at school boards as well as uh, legislators and all that. And, and, you know, these are people who serve uh, without pay, Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also very little uh, regulation or requirement for being a a school board member. Just about anybody can do it. Um, And Bob's belief is that whoever does serve on a school board or any office in Pennsylvania should have to, t- should have to swear to uphold the Constitution. 
that that should be a re- prerequisite well, for let's any hope office. So yes, yeah, yeah. Well, but it's not. apparently it's not. I know. Right. Well, that that was that was pretty shocking to read. And uh, a lot of our, our, our democracy sort of begins on the school board level in Pennsylvania. That's where a lot of folks' first experience in the political uh, culture is. So starting there and having a stronger uh, standard of conduct might uh, have ripple effects in the larger things. Final, uh, final questions for our author.